0: Alright, if you have your Bibles, go and turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty-seven. We're going to look at the single most significant event in all of world history. Single most significant event in all of world history. Uh, Rich, rich chapter. It um, as I read it and study it, and we're just going to do a lot of reading. It speaks for itself. Uh, if you have questions as we read, feel free to go ahead and throw them out. But as I read it, it just melts me. It causes me to realize how much God loves me, what Jesus did for me, and how significant it is to me personally that He transformed my life and. So it's just a blessing to be able to read of the crucifixion. Uh, It's hard stuff, but definitely needful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and this opportunity that we have, Lord, to be able to have this documented for us. This is your demonstration of love. This is your passion. This is the thing that moves and drives you. Your love for us and securing a place for us in eternity. At any point, Lord, you could have just bowed out of this, and nobody would have blamed you, but you went through it. And because of this single act, we have life. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we just ask that you would speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So last time we saw the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his Father if this cup could pass from me, but nevertheless not my will but your will be done. The cup we learned was God's wrath. God doesn't like, hates sin. And so because sin is in the world, something had to be done. And it's just an awesome plan that God had that he would be just by punishing sin, but also the justifier by securing a place for his kids in heaven with him. So he is just, but he is also the justifier. He justifies us through the sacrifice. Goes on to say, When morning came all the chief priests and elders of the people fought against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, They led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Pontius Pilate is an interesting character. He had two to three strikes against him already from Caesar Tiberius. One of them, uh, both of them had to do with the Jews. One of them was he brought some horrible thing in the temple that was an idol, and there was a riot. The Jews rebelled against it, and they were going to... um, just, they, they were not having it. And so, he was going to stand his ground, but he noticed they weren't backing down. And so they said, if you kill us, if you kill 10 of us, 20 more will line up to take our place. So, if that's where you want to take this, then go ahead. And he bowed out. He kind of bailed out and just backed off. And of course, that all goes to Caesar. And Caesar says, yeah, as a governor, that's not, that's not what you do to one of my regions. You don't go in the temple... And defile it with an idol. That was just lame. So then he almost tried to make up for it some years later. And he ends up uh, putting together this aqueduct to be able to get them water. And and just, you know, this cool little project. What he does to fund it as he runs out of money is he goes into the temple. And he robs the temple so that he can fund his project. And that incites a riot. And then that again goes to Caesar Tiberius, And he had two strikes, major strikes against him at this point. Because as you read this, you're like, why is he such a punk? Like, why is he so not, he knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows, he says it, that they're handing him over for envy. But yet, ah, it's like his hands are tight. And politics are just that interesting dynamic. You know, when you go into politics and when you play the political game, um, and they exist everywhere. There's family politics, there's work politics, there's politic, political politics. But you got to be careful. you got to be careful from playing that political game. Again, whether it be through family, through work, or through politics itself. But once you get into that, it's like a web. It just sucks you in. And before you know it, it's like you're doing things that you compromise with because you're trying to win this group over here. And you don't want to antagonize that group. And you don't want these people upset with you or mad at you. And so before you know it, so I always just say one with God is a majority. Find out where truth is. Find out what God is specifically calling you to. And then just stand on that. And then let God go before you. Let Him defend you. Let Him open up doors for you. Let Him shut doors if He so wants to. But be careful with politics. Pontius Pilate, you're going to see as we go through, the governor, he just finds himself in a horrendous position because of the politics of everything. Verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. And brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And so, I mean, is that not like proof that his enemy is bringing back this 30... And he's saying that he has sinned by betraying innocent blood here? Verse 4. So he brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to you? You see to it. And so Judas Iscariot... Son of perdition. Son of Satan, really. Um, man, horrible, horrible person to be. You don't want to be in that position where you betray God and you turn against God. There's, there's no way out. You got, you got nothing. When you fight against God, uh, Joshua right now is teaching through Exodus. Brian taught Exodus here at this Bible study a while back. and As we were going through it, I'm just reminded... Uh, Pharaoh and is just fighting God. You know, when God is saying, let my people go to go worship me in the wilderness and he just fights and resists and, and just hold back like, no, he's fighting God. You're never going to win. We saw Absalom as we go through 2 Samuel, David's son fighting against God, Ahithophel turning against God, all these guys in the Old Testament. And so you're never going to win. Um, he realizes that he made a mistake, but his was not re- repentance. Uh, Judas Iscariot. His was more remorse and regret. And so a lot of people, they'll, they'll cry about the mistakes they made in life. They'll feel bad about the mistakes they made in life. You go to prisons or, or jails and you talk to people, they're always feeling bad. But they're feeling bad that they got caught. They're feeling bad that they're in them. They're feeling bad that their freedom was taken away. They're feeling bad that they got caught and that other guy did it. They're feeling bad that the dude... Ranked on them and told on them, you know, they're feeling bad for a lot of stuff, but repentance is entirely different. And if you want a character study, contrast Judas Iscariot to Peter. Peter repented and he's restored. And so God always has forgiveness for us. God is not tired of offering forgiveness and extending forgiveness to us. But the contrast is are we regretting and remorseful or are we repenting? Turning away from and turning to God. And I think there's a big difference. And we will experience a far greater outcome. And it's kind of sad. Don't you wish sometimes you could shake people into getting it? But the reality is, you got to just wait. And I don't believe that everybody needs to come to the bottom. Like, oh, they're at the bottom, man. They're, they're ready to tap out. We don't know where people's bottoms are. I've seen some people and I'm like, oh my God, your bottom must be the abyss. Your bottom must be the pit of the center of hell because, wow, you just keep going and keep going and keep going. And you got all these consequences, but yet you're not getting it, are you? And so not everybody has to come to the bottom or bottom out. Um, everybody's an example, and we learn from examples, It does our experience. It doesn't have to be our experience. We can learn from somebody else's. And so... Judas and Peter are good character contrasts because one truly repents and is restored. The other one regrets and is remorseful and ends up going out to hang himself. Uh, So they said, you see to it, verse 5, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. There's a counter scripture in the book of Acts that says Judas was, um, he fell over a cliff and his insides gushed out, the bowels gushed out. So the idea, or the, you put these two sections of Scripture together, they believe that he hung himself over a cliff, broke, broke, and he fell over the cliff, and his bowels gushed out. So, nonetheless, two mentions of suicide in the Bible. We saw one with, who was it? In Samuel, who committed suicide? Ahithophel? Ahithophel, is the one that stabbed himself, right? Yeah, Ahithophel. He got his house in order, and then he went. He put everything in order, and then he went and he killed himself. But yeah, I think he stabbed himself. Whatever he did. He fell on his sword, or, or he... well, Saul fell on his sword, didn't kill himself. Asked somebody nearby to finish oh, him off. Okay, that's. Okay. So that wasn't necessarily suicide. I mean, he tried. But the one that I'm thinking is Ahithophel. So two mentions, um, suicide is a hor- horrendous you know, way to go, it's very selfish, the most selfish thing you can do, and really you're not really always trying to um, really kill the inside, you're, you're trying to kill, or you're trying to get rid of the inside, what's going on, on the inside, and you're killing your shell, which unfortunately just begins your problem, so it's a interesting little thing, two mentions of it, and we find ourselves reading about both of them two weeks apart. In all of the Bible. But the chief priest, <clears throat> verse 6 says, took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was pierced. Whom they, uh, the children of Israel, price, children of Israel, price, and gave them for Potter's field, as the Lord directed to me. I find this interesting. Four hundred years before uh, this event, this is prophesied in Jeremiah, and no such thing as as crucifixion, yet pierced. Just find that interesting. Where is that? In the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Oh, yeah, yeah. says right there. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered, nothing. That scripture in Isaiah 53, um, you know, he held his, his tongue, he said nothing. It's just a picture of Jesus. Jesus could do a lot of things, and I think it's a lot of things that Jesus could be doing that he's not doing that um, really, really impresses me. Obviously, going to the cross and being crucified, dying for our sins, what He did was incredible. But think about what He had access to. Think about what He could have done. He could have... Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And every letter in between, He knows speech. He speaks in words, and the world leaps into existence, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glories of the only begotten of the Father. He is the Creator. He created all things. Nothing was created outside of Him, the Bible teaches. And so, I mean, He knows language. He knows rhetoric. He knows argumentation. He knows logic better than anybody. And He says nothing. He can defend Himself. He can turn them into a pretzel. You know, just logically, He doesn't. He just answers nothing. He's determined. He knows his mission. He knows what he is setting out to do. And again, I, a lot of that just impresses me about my Savior. Lord, you could have done so much to defend yourself, to speak up, to, to stop this. And you didn't. You went through with it. You, 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 you knew what your mission was. You knew what your calling was. You knew what was ahead of you. You knew what you were going to experience. And you did it. And I again, I just I'm blown away, and in, in, eternally indebted to God because of what He did for me. Then Pilate said to him, "Do you not hear how many things, verse thirteen, they testify against you?" But he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marvelled greatly. Verse. 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner. Notorious is like a bad guy, like a murderer, an insurrectionist, uh, like a thug, like a terrorist, right? Prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas is Bar-Abba, son of the Father. Bar is son, Abba. His first name is Jesus. Jesus, son of the Father. Interesting dynamic and play on names and words taking place here. Therefore, when they had gathered together, verse 17, (coughs) Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Do you want me to deliver to you, release to you, Jesus, Son of the Father, or Jesus, the Anointed One, the Son of the Real Father? It's like Mother Teresa, or Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, it's like it's like Princess Diana or uh, you know Stalin. I mean, just it's like wicked, horrible, horrendous, or somebody that you know they ain't done much bad, they ain't done nothing bad. Jesus, right? And so I think Pilate here is like, I got this. I'm a politician. I know how to do this. They hate this. I mean, this guy's an insurrectionist. He's turning on everybody. He's murderer. He's a thug. Yeah, everybody's going to pick Barabbas. And so he gives them this choice. Verse 18, For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Interesting. There's the motive of the religious leaders. If you ever want to know, why did they hate Jesus so much? Why were they so against him? Why were they antagonistic against him the whole time? Envy. He had drawn attention that they wanted. He had the approval of people that they wanted. How far people will go for attention, huh? Mm-hmm. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Um, Pilate's wife went from Roman citizen to, to converting to Judaism. Upon coming in contact with Jesus' this dream and then watching everything that transpires here, she ends up converting to Christianity, history tells us. So she becomes a Christian. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded, verse 20, the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what? Then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, Let him be crucified. And that's tough when you're already in this two-strikes position and you know that, ah, one more mess up with the Jews and it's, it's basically my job. But when you elevate your job above God or above the priority that should be your life, ah, it's a shame. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, Verse 24, but rather that a tumult was rising. So now he's getting scared. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Now why wouldn't the Jews just execute Jesus? Because they would execute through stoning and the right of execution was taken away from them from the Roman government. And so also... Psalm 22 says he was pierced. He he would be crucified. Interesting, prophesied again hundreds of years before crucifixion would even be invented. And all the people answered and said, this is scary, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The scriptures don't mention a lot of The dynamics of what's taking place. One little word, scourged. But if you go back into history and you see how many died just through the scourging, where the back is shred open and and the the, the, uh, kidneys and some of the uh, organs are, are revealed through just the scourging, and then to be able to take the cross beam and have that ripped open back. Because when you're on the cross, it's usually dying of suffocation. So you lift up with your legs, and so every time you're doing that, your back that's already ripped open is scraping against that wood, and just it's a, it's a painful, painful. What they did through crucifixion was they were trying to see what's the most painful way we can get somebody to die. What's the most agony we can place upon a human being? The most wicked, evil thing invented to be able to have somebody suffer, and they came up with crucifixion. So that's a scary thing, his blood be on us and on our children. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him since he's king of the Jews. They're going to mock him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. To him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place, a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull. So this is Mount Calvary. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And so many believe that this would be like an anesthetic. Jesus would say no to the anesthesia, no to the painkiller. He's going to feel the brunt of this full force. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them in my clothing and they cast lots. That's interesting because Jesus is crucified naked. Your clothes identify your you know your your culture. Jesus died for the sins of the world, identifying with humanity, not with the Jews or with you know a certain culture or a certain look. He died as a human, just couldn't identify where he's from, if you will. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put over his head the accusation written to him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right hand, the other on the left. We know that they would mock him, these two robbers. Luke tells us that one of them, after the mocking and a lot of what had transpired, Jesus' first saying on the cross, is Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they do. And so as that robber who's next to him, one of them begins to just watch this and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. To that robber he would say, Today you will be with me in paradise. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from that cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. If Jesus would do what they say, that he saved others, he cannot save himself, which is true, then it wouldn't be true that he would save us, if he saves himself. So that was the choice that he took. He's not going to save himself. And because of that, he saves us. 45, now from the 6th hour, 12 noon, to the ninth hour, 3 o'clock p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Think about that. The, the time of the day where the sun is right over your head. Even light is an interesting dynamic. Because in the book of Genesis, the Bible says, before the sun and the stars and these light-emitting things that we know as light were in existence, before those things came into existence, the Bible says, let there be light. And so light is an interesting dynamic in the scriptures. It's a different kind of light. It's like when you come to the Lord, a light bulb goes off. Your eyes are open and you can see because of that light that is coming into your life, into your heart. And it's very different than light that illuminates, but it's illuminating light for your soul. And so I find it interesting that God is using the light of the sun, S-U-N, in the world to cast darkness on the land. And throughout history, you have all these accounts. This is a worldwide darkness. So not just the sun over Calvary, Mount Calvary, but all over wherever that sun was shining. So it's just an interesting dynamic that, um, as I was listening to different studies, some of the pastors were saying that there's uh, something historical there that people have in their writings of a day that had gone dark. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, That's in um, Arabic. That is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the Bible is written in Greek, Hebrew, and then there's little Arabic, Arabic sprinkled in there. Daniel has some right here. That's an Arabic saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this would be the place, the point that the sins of the world, my sins specifically, are placed upon Jesus on the cross. And he would endure the absence of the presence of the Father. No Holy Spirit to be with him. So he would feel the brunt of our sin in more ways than one. And that right there to me is probably one of the biggest deals in all of the Bible. That Jesus would forego his right with communion with the Father for me. That he did that for me. In all eternity past, he always had a perfect relationship with his Father. And at this moment that my sins are placed upon him, your sins are placed upon him on the cross, the Father cannot look upon him, turns his back from him, and he feels the brunt of that and says, why have you forsaken me? Never does he call him my God, my God. He calls him Father. Always. But here there's almost a disconnect. God, where are you? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran took a sponge filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earthquake and the rocks were split. 52 is one of the craziest verses in all of the Bible. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 53. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What? Dawn of the Dead. You guys remember that movie? Yeah. That's crazy. But there it is in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. You know, how hard are the religious leaders that they're seeing all of this? They're, They're witness to it. They have a front row seat. Earthquake. Sun goes black. Dead bodies resurrect out of tombs. All these miracles that Jesus did. They're eyewitnesses to this. They, they have a front row seat. How hard does a heart have to be to reject God? It's crazy. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how this deceiver said, After three days I will arise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Again, as I had the opportunity to read through that this week, I just, I was reminded of just, you know, my salvation and what God secured on my, for me, you know, just very personal, very, like, wow. Because of this single act, I have life. And all of us do, who trust in Christ, who recognize that that sacrifice was made on our behalf. And if you would be the only person on the planet that would receive that gift, he would have done it. He still would have done it. And yet we know that there's countless millions that would surrender their hearts to God, be in heaven forever and ever. I'll close with this. Um... Campolo, what's his first name? Tony, Tony Campolo. He was in a preach one day. Nobody would call it a preachathon, but that's exactly what it was. Five ministers would go to be able to share a message, and they would try to outdo one another. And so, you know, it's like a conference of sorts, and so there were going to be five different ministers to go up, and they had a topic and some to cover, and so... They would out, you know, they're competitive and try to outdo one another. And so he had this opportunity and he goes up and he just, it's a mic drop for him, you know. He just kills it and just knows that man, nobody's gonna top that. That's just crazy. So this little old minister goes up after him. Little Baptist minister. And he's just soft-spoken guy, but passionate nonetheless. And he shares this message. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. on this Based on this entire chapter here and obviously Chapter 28, Matthew, when Jesus rises from the dead. And here's some of the excerpts from that message, if you will. Again, I'll close here. He says, it's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he was praying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are hiding. Peter's denying that he knows the Lord. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday, Jesus is standing before the high priest of Israel, silent as a lamb before the slaughter, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, Jesus is beaten, mocked, and spit upon, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, these Roman soldiers are flogging our Lord with a leather scourge that has bits of bones and glass and metal tearing at his flesh, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the Son of Man stands firm as they press the crown of thorns down into his brow, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, see him walking to Calvary, the blood dripping from his body, see the cross crashing down on his back as he stumbles beneath the load. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, see those Roman soldiers driving the nails into the feet and hands of the Lord, He says of my Lord. Hear my Jesus cry, Father, forgive them. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody and dying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the sky grows dark, the earth begins to tremble, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. Holy God, who will not abide with, the sin, with sin, pours out his wrath on that perfect sacrificial lamb who cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a horrible cry, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, and at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple that separates simple man from a holy God was torn from the top to the bottom because Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping, and hell is partying, but that's because it's Friday, and they don't know it. But Sunday's coming. And on that horrible day 2,000 years ago, Jesus the Christ, the Lord of glory, the only begotten Son of God, the only perfect man, died on the cross of Calvary. Satan thought that he had won the victory. Surely he had destroyed the Son of God. Finally he had disproved the prophecy God had uttered in the garden. And the one who was to crush his head had been destroyed. But that was Friday. Now it's Sunday. And just about dawn, on the first day of the week, there was a great earthquake. But that wasn't the only thing that was shaking, because now it's Sunday. And the angel of the Lord is coming down out of heaven and rolling the stone away from the door of the tomb. Yes, it's Sunday. And the angel of the Lord is sitting on that stone, and the guards posted at the tomb to keep the body from disappearing were shaking shaking in their boots, because it's Sunday. And the lamb that was silent before the slaughter is now resurrected, uh, the resurrected lion from the tribe of Judah, for he is not here, the angel says. He is risen indeed. It's Sunday, and the crucified and resurrected Christ has defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave. It's Sunday, and now everything has changed. It's the age of grace. God's grace poured out on all who would look to that crucified Lamb of Calvary, grace freely given to all who would believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, was buried, and rose again, all because it's Sunday. At the end of the message, the pastor shouts out, It's Friday! And the whole congregation responds, But Sunday's coming. <coughs> I've heard the message. It's pretty powerful. Pastor Chuck read that one Good Friday service. Did hey? took parts of it anyway. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the plan of salvation. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the accomplishment and what it means. And I pray, Lord, that our gratitude would be expressed in just receiving and accepting all that you say about us And about what you accomplished for us. Thank you Lord so much. For new life. And an eternity spent with you. May we ever be grateful. In Jesus name. Amen.